Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll hear from leaders of no-labels and others as they discuss what is next for Congress. We're joined by Bill Galston, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, former Congressman Tom Davis, Steve Perlstein, a business and economics columnist with The Washington Post, and A.B. Stoddard, columnist and associate editor at Real Clear Politics. Let's listen in. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the call. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be looking at the ocean here in Santa Barbara, this sun, wonderful sunny California. Um, I welcome all of you to this briefing, which is our inaugural call for 2021. And I'd like to wish you all a happy and healthy new year. Um, I've been involved with No Labels for about three years and owe my participation to my good friend, Howard Marks. And I sure enjoyed um, being a small part of No Labels. Um, 2020 was not only the 10th anniversary of No Labels, but a banner year for this organization. And we have high hopes for 2021 and beyond. Um, appropriately, today's subject is what's next for Congress. Um, and we have four excellent speakers, and I'll begin by introducing them. They will each speak for several minutes on what they believe is likely to atop the agenda in Washington and what are the prospects for bi- bipartisan governance. Uh, afterwards, Ryan Clancy will moderate a Q&A session. Uh, I'd like to start my introduction with two of our co-founders. First, Bill Galston. Uh, Bill holds the Ezra Zilka Chair in the Brookings Institute Governance Studies Program. Uh, Before this, he's held many public policy positions, including Deputy Assistant to President Clinton for public policy. Um, He currently writes very thoughtful columns for the Wall Street Journal. Um, secondly, is Tom Davis is a partner at the firm of Holland. I'm excuse, uh, excuse me there. I missed, uh, yeah, I got to um, Holland tonight. <laughs> and, um, Tom Davis is a partner at the firm of Holland and Knight. Excuse me. He has been a longtime Republican office holder, including 14 years in the house of representatives where he served as chairman of the committee on oversight and governance. He graduated BA cum laude from Amherst College and received his law degree from the University of Virginia. But much more important than all of that is today's Tom's birthday. So please join me in wishing Tom a very happy birthday. Bravo, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Next, uh, Steve Perlstein is a business and economics columnist at the Washington Post, where he was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his commentaries on the 2008 global financial crisis. He also won Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award and has been a professor of political and international political affairs at George Mason University. Uh, Lastly, but not leastly, A.B. Stoddard is an associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. She has covered the U.S. Congress since 1994 for State's News Services, The Hill Newspaper, and as a Senate producer for NBC News. 
In 2011, her columns won a first place from the Society of Professional Journalists. She is often a guest host on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. Uh, talk about nonpartisan. Um, I am also proud to call AB a personal friend. Um, so let's begin, and Bill Galston, we'll start with you. Well, thanks so much, Bob. Uh, and if I may begin on a personal note, it is a pleasure to be reunited with you in the same organization. Uh, Bob and I were both on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy uh, for many years. He served with great distinction and I learned many things about him, including the fact that he is an exceedingly modest man. Uh, so you would never guess, for example, from his self-introduction that he served with dignity and grace as our ambassador to the court of St. James uh, for about four years. And, uh, you know, is, is, I think, a perfect example of, you know, someone who has made his mark both in the private sector uh, and in, in, and in public service. Uh, and I have to say, it's great to be, great to be in harness with you, Bob. And this is the first chance I've had to say it. Uh, Thank you, Bill. And, uh, I, you know, if you contribute as much to no labels as you did to the National Endowment for Democracy, then our, our future looks good. Uh, <laughs> let me just, let me just spend two minutes making four preliminary observations. Uh, I, will be, I will be followed by uh, a number of real experts on Congress, and I'm not gonna pretend to be one. So here are my four points. Number one, as you know, uh, as we speak, uh, the citizens of Georgia are voting on not one but two Senate seats, and the outcome of that vote will determine who controls the United States Senate for the next four years. That makes a difference in some respects. Uh, controlling committees uh, allows, you know, allows the controlling party to really dominate the hearings process, the oversight process. It also means that a handful of legislative items can pass even if the opposition party is united against them. I say a handful because as we know in the current US Senate, uh, most items take, uh, take 60 votes to proceed and, and, and to be enacted into legislation at least to pass, pass the Senate. Uh, and what that suggests to me is that control of the Senate is not going to make a night and day difference over the next two years. Uh, because at the end of the day, a pivotal block of compromise-minded uh, uh, senators who are independent of their leadership or independent enough to deal regularly across the aisle with others, uh, those of the other party, are going to be able to determine what kind of legislation passes and what not. Uh, and the fact that both the House and the Senate will be, will, will be governed by such exceedingly narrow margins means that the opportunity 
for no labels, for the problem solvers in the House, and for our rapidly expanding block of sympathizers in the Senate to play the pivotal role over the next two uh, over the next two years has never been higher as it is today. As our founder Nancy Jacobson is fond of saying, this is our moment, and we need to organize and focus to seize it. Point number three, as to the legislative agenda itself, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody that until the pandemic uh, is brought under control and until uh, the the process of distributing and the vaccine and inoculating the population is smoothed out and has proceeded down the road a long way, everything else is going to be in second place. Uh, Very few presidents have ever taken office with such a clear imperative of dealing with an overwhelming problem. One thinks of Franklin Roosevelt in 1933, perhaps, and a few others, but it will dominate the agenda. But this is my fourth and final point. Uh, It's it's easy to anticipate uh, that other items will come up quickly. Uh, For example, the debate over aid to states and localities, which was left over from the the debate that led up to the uh, led up to the compromise bill this December. Uh, President-elect Biden has announced his intention to try to deal with immigration early on. Uh, The demonstrations of last summer, I think, mean that questions of racial equity and policing will all be on the table. And certainly, despite the joke that this is the 200th straight infrastructure week, it is very, very likely that some portions of that agenda will also emerge early. What I want to leave you with is the following thought. In all of those areas, our friends in the House and Senate have already done a good deal of bipartisan work, uh, and they are champing at the bit to continue that work in the new Congress that began just a couple of days ago. And in that endeavor, they'll uh, uh, they'll be assisted by an independent think tank, uh, the new center, which spun off from No Labels a few years ago, which has already contributed uh, bipartisan legislative proposals in all of the areas that I just mentioned and many others besides. So with that, I'll hand it off to, I believe, Tom Davis. Bill, thank you very much. Um, Best part of my resume is that I left Congress undefeated and unindicted, something I'm very, very proud of. Um, look, I was Republican House Republican campaign chairman for two cycles. I was, you know, in the leadership and then a committee chairman, um, and uh, so I, I, I have seen Congress devolve basically from an independent body as envisioned by the Constitution and checks and balances into basically now uh, being I don't want to say worthless, but it, it's it's not doesn't operate independently. The president's party now is merely an appendage of the executive branch. They spend their time protecting their quarterback, under-investigating and protecting them. Uh, The minority party no longer sees themselves uh, as minority shareholders, where they can offer perfecting amendments, um, where they can mitigate the effects of bad legislation. They're now just the opposition party. We see this as everything is filibustered in the Senate. In the House, you get very little cooperation. Uh, Kevin McCarthy described these are the job of the minorities to get to the majority. 
So everything is calibrated. Is this going to get us, uh, you know, in, into the uh, the speakership the next time? And if you look underneath that, it starts with the uh, um, with, with with the uh, voters themselves. You know, we see split their tickets very rarely today. Uh, I think you'll see whoever wins Georgia win both seats. You're going to be able to separate with a dime the two races. Um, people vote the party and not the uh, the person. Uh, and so when members come that way, that's that's how they behave uh, accordingly. And it's a very divided country. This wasn't a particularly close election. It was like a seven million vote between them, but uh, it's 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 sharply divided. Um, for example, um, there were 32 counties in the country. Trump got over 90% of the vote. Uh, another 514 counties, he got over 80% of the vote. And uh, Biden got over 80% of the vote in 34 counties. This is unprecedented in this modern age to see this kind of polarization. Uh, and it's, it's, it's geographical, it's racial, it's a whole lot of areas. And we see this reflected now uh, with what's going on in Washington and being able to accept the election results and the circus that I think that we'll see uh, tomorrow. Yet I think there's a lot of hope, as Bill said, once we get past uh, the circus. Um, with, with Biden as president, um, Whatever happens in Georgia, but if, if the Republicans were win the two seats at this point, it forces a conversation for people to talk to each other. Uh, controlling the Senate is important uh, for the president's party because it allows his nominees to go through smoothly. Um, if you control the floor, you can move your nominations. Uh, if Biden puts nominees up that are unacceptable to uh, the majority leader and Republicans, they can block them. Uh, Trump had this problem even when they controlled the Senate with Democrats filibustering uh, a record number of, of his, of his uh, nominees. In fact, they changed the Senate rules from 30 hours of debate to two hours of debate uh, for many of those positions, or it would have taken seven years for the president to, uh, uh, to move through all of his nominees to cabinet, sub-cabinet, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know which party started this, but it, it keeps getting worse and worse uh, and worse. And yet the hope is, as we see the Problem Solvers Caucus that has emerged, uh, they resurrected uh, the CARES package, the, 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 the latest package that went through independently announcing a bipartisan deal that forced the leaders of both parties to deal with this in a way the can would have been kicked down the road uh, without it. And they promised to be even more of a force in this next Congress, which is even more closely divided than before. Uh, neither the speaker uh, nor the majority leader in the Senate will be able to deliver anything without bipartisan uh, support. Uh, and we hold, we basically hold the middle. We hold people that are willing to work across party lines and work with each other, risk the primary fights. Uh, and that's basically what, what this is about. You've got to remember that about 80% of the House, the only race that matters to them is the primary election. To them, uh, November is just a constitutional formality. So they hew their time and their attention to their primary voters. You want to know why so many Republicans uh, are, are voting uh, tomorrow to uh, uh, upset the electoral college vote, at least challenge it in some of these states. They're afraid of their primary voters. I've talked to a number of them who said, I'm going to be primaried uh, without it. Uh, that's the, the, the vote that counts for most of these members. And this polarization um, has gotten worse, it's not getting better. We're going through a redistricting cycle where it's, it's liable to be the same. We could have a lengthy discussion about why that's the case. But our group represents members from all sides who came to Washington to get things done. Uh, and we've seen minor successes, but this latest, this CARES Act uh, package that went through at the end, I think you can attribute to the leadership that we provided 
And I think, as, as Bill Galston said, on immigration, where majorities exist in both houses, partisan, bipartisan majorities exist if, if we can get the legislation on the floor and on infrastructure, uh, I think it can happen. Uh, the biggest problem, of course, is going to be the deficit issues that are all of a sudden now uh, emerging with the dollar having lost something like 13% last year. Uh, what we're seeing uh, is that the deficit only matters when the other party's in, in power. And you're going to see a return to that, I think, on the part of my power in terms of argue, my party in terms of arguing about this. But look, underneath all of all of the uh, conflict that we see in the streets and on the floor and in the electorate, uh, I think there's there is a silver lining, and that's what no labels and particularly this problem solvers caucus, which grew out of our movement uh, coming, that I, I think can restore some order. Uh, I like to quote the results of this last election is we might not, have, many of us didn't, may not have gotten the election results we wanted, but maybe we got what we needed if we get a divided government, people talking to each other slowly, a president who is at least an institutionalist and understands uh, the need to, to work across lines and has a reputation and a history of doing that. Um, and we also, going back to, that was a Rolling Stones quote, the other is a, the Beatles uh, song on uh, money can't buy you love. And uh, we've seen this in all these races that all the money in the world coming in from the left and the right hasn't made a difference. Uh, no labels through its super PAC has made a difference in a number of races that have given reinforcement to members, uh, a cavalry, if you will, to members who are willing to buck their party and their primary basis to come across party lines and get results. So I'm optimistic and we have a great opportunity and I want to thank all of you for your support. And I guess I'm going to hand it now to... Uh, uh, Stephen, I'll go uh, to Stephen Perlstein, who's our very distinguished professor at George Mason uh, University. He's a former Democratic Hill staffer uh, and just a fountain of knowledge. Thank you, Tom. Um, we, we, we didn't uh, coordinate uh, particularly well, the, the three of us so far, uh, who are going to speak because uh, we all have the same thing, uh, message to deliver, basically, which is that this is the best of times uh, and the worst of times, it's the worst of time for obvious reasons that everyone can see of what's going on this week in Washington. But it's the best of times for no labels and uh, and uh, the problem solvers. Um, I think, as I said to this group in the past, the challenge is not coming up with uh, bipartisan compromises on policy. That actually is the easy part. The hard part is coming up with the political courage um, and the parliamentary mechanisms for bucking the leadership, uh, which has in recent years gathered all the power to itself um, and enforces that and, and essentially holds on to that power by enforcing party unity through the caucuses. Well, we can see now the caucuses are breaking, uh, at least on the Republican side, uh, are, are well divided and we can we will see in, I think, in the coming months that the Democratic caucuses will be broken uh, into two as well uh, along ideological lines. And that's an opportunity because as long as the members of, of the problem solvers have the ability um, to meet with each other, come up with ideas and, and basically not get muscled um, by people, leaders saying to them, you've got to stick with the party you got on parliamentary issues, you've got to stick with us on the substantive issues. This is the opportunity that uh, in many ways we've been waiting for for, for years um, uh, to be able to use, you know, the muscle of a relatively small group of people, but 
given the even division in both chambers now, use that to force getting uh, getting issues to the floor, getting them to be debated, getting them to be amended. Imagine that amendments uh, and uh, and votes. And so this is a, this is a, an opportunity uh, that we haven't seen in a while. Um, <laughs> Biden's, Biden's instinct will be to uh, negotiate with the leaders. Um, and uh, he's probably got to be given the opportunity to do that. I think we know where that goes. It goes nowhere. The leaders can't compromise. They, if they compromise, they break up uh, their, the unity of their caucuses. So uh, then the next step is for him to turn to groups like uh, no labels and the problem solvers um, and work with those. And um, I would say in the second half of the year, that looks, that looks to be very optimistic. I would say one other thing, since there are so many of you, I look down the list here. So many of you who are uh, 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 well-connected in the business world and the business lobby, um, this is a real opportunity this year for a democratic president, a moderate deal-making democratic president uh, to make common cause with the business community, which for the last, since really since the mid-1990s, it's a long time, 25 years, has been uh, associated itself with the Republican caucuses of the House and Senate. Uh, this is a real opportunity for Democrats uh, if they want to build back bridges with the business community and vice versa for the business community to build back bridges with, the Dem with Democrats who frankly uh, have written them off because uh, business has been so closely allied with the Republican caucuses. So this is another good opportunity to change the underlying political dynamics uh, on the Hill. I'll probably leave it there. All right. Uh, A.B.? Oh, thank you so much, Bob. Um, I don't want to gush too long about Bob, but he is a dear family friend, as he uh, noted before. And his journey to and engagement with No Labels has just totally thrilled and delighted me. Uh, and it's great to be with all of you today. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I think that the election was uh, very jarring to both parties because it was not answering any questions. It was not the results that the polls told us it would be. And it really provides this kind of pause where I see that, that neither party is on a sustainable growth trajectory at all. And that in the years to come post-Trump, I think Republicans like Josh Hawley know, or Mike Pompeo, that they might not be able to get uh, Latino and uh, African-American working class men that Trump did in this election, whereas uh, Kamala Harris might not get a lot of uh, white moderates, Catholics in the Rust Belt that Joe Biden did. So they really, if they look at the results, have to be very sober about what their cultural messaging on the left did and what the embrace by Republicans of Trump did. And so I have a favorite quote since the election I wanna share with you, Tom Emmers, who was not a favorite at the NRCC. It was assumed for, for um, two years that he was gonna obviously lose a whole bunch of seats and they surprised everybody and won a bunch of seats. He said, we've labeled the Democrats as they've labeled themselves two years ago as the far socialist left. 
I know we've been laughed at for two years, but this made a huge difference. So Democrats, um, despite the progressive fantasies that they would have a mandate to boss Joe Biden around, have none. They uh, picked up two Senate seats and lost one for a net pickup of one. And with two Georgia Senate seats, should they prevail tonight, they will be on a very rocky path, as Bill Galston noted. And they must be humbled by the fact that to break a tie, they need the vice president and that everything will require 60 votes, except for something like budget reconciliation, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, what we've also learned um, is, is, is what I think Tom mentioned, which is that the money wasted in the Kentucky Senate race, in the South Carolina Senate race, no matter who is the victor in Georgia tonight, the money wasted on Leffler and Purdue or on Warnock and Ossoff is absolutely obscene. And what Tom describes, that the people who are in the Problem Solvers Caucus doing all the hard work with their Senate counterparts, compromising at the table and taking the slings and arrow for the threat of a primary challenge, they are the ones that need the money. The center needs to be fortified to fend off these primary threats so that they can govern. While the rest of them in super duper red and blue districts uh, just cater to the noisiest elements um, in their blue or red party uh, so that they can prevail in a primary that is usually, as we've all studied, uh, made up of only single issue activists and the most uh, you know, motivated partisans and not moderate voters looking for someone to compromise in Washington. So as we look at, at these ele the election on November 3rd and then and the aftermath um, in tomorrow or the weeks to come whenever Georgia's decided, it's really important to remember that this money is just being thrown around at partisans um, to no good. They are coming to Washington to not compromise, to always vote no or yes. Um, and that was really borne out in the obscene amounts of money that we've seen. So again, I was heartened actually by the ticket splitting that I did see. Uh, and I was thinking about it when Tom was talking in Nebraska, in Maricopa County, in Omaha, in Maricopa County, Arizona, in Maine, where many, many people put Susan Collins eight points over uh, Sarah Gideon after she was behind her in every poll for a year and a half and Trump lost the state. People, voters are thinking for themselves and that's very good news for the problem solvers and people who want people to compromise in Washington. When I look at, uh, again, the, the direction in the Senate, it, it, should the Democrats prevail and they have a Senate majority, yes, they get their justices, they get their committee chairmanships, but they are not going to be able to pass anything um, drastic. And so that's why I'm actually not putting my money on immigration because I think it tears the party, the Democratic Party apart so much. I have much higher hopes for infrastructure. We of course will see a new COVID relief, a need for another bill early on, but I'm with Bill that crushing the virus and stabilizing the economy and undoing the damage from the ongoing Russia hack, which is now a month old and continues uh, unabated, um, damaging our national security and God knows what else from the businesses that were hacked to. There is just so much emergency level stuff on Joe Biden's plate that pushing him in his party for huge progressive legislative wins is going to get the Democratic Party nowhere. So it's important to expect that there won't be a hundred day, first hundred day push of legislative successes with lots of press conferences. 
this man was elected to take control at this time of so many overlapping crises that at home rapid tests and vaccination distribution and, and money for state and local governments are at the top of Joe Biden's list and getting to these other things um, will come later. When those coalitions are fortified, certainly by the, the people that we're talking about, I do think we'll see more COVID relief. I do think we'll see some police reform down the road, infrastructure, and certainly they should get to pre prescription drugs as soon as possible. That is a bipartisan issue. Though Mitch McConnell has never wanted to put it on the floor, you have a grassley widen bill that has, I think Grassley said 12 Republican co-sponsors, Susan Collins has worked extensively on that. I really see hope for that. Otherwise, stabilizing the ACA, uh, which Biden will be doing, will be mostly done through executive action. And, and he knows he's not gonna get um, a public option or a lot of these eligible eligibility issues changed in legislation in this kind of a Senate with these numbers and this kind of a razor thin margin in the House. But he could down the road potentially seek to use budget reconciliation to try to find some money from reversing those uh, Trump tax cuts to try to um, increase subsidization because the, the big problem remains um, the, the um, the the high cost of um, of deductible deductibles and and premiums in in for those in the exchanges and so they want to layer on more subsidies and to find the money they're going to have to do that that still is a very tough vote you could see him maybe getting somebody who is retiring uh, signing on a Republican very important to watch the people who are retiring in addition to the problem solvers allies the no labels allies in the Senate. Um, before the pandemic, uh, one of the last times I was um, able to engage in one of those um, meetings, I was very heartened to see senators um, like uh, Cassidy continue to be involved. I was heartened to see him on uh, the, the uh, bipartisan letter about tomorrow's vote. Senator Round, Senator Young, I think because Portman is up uh, in cycle, he's likely to participate um, and obviously um, people retiring like Senator Burr and Senator Toomey could be very helpful allies in, in a bipartisan block. Um, and I'm not counting out Tom Tillis, who's had a very tough time and very much expected to lose, but was once considered um, a real uh, sort of bipartisan operator. He used to call himself a rhino, a Republican in need of an outcome. And it would be if he decided that this was going to be his last term, an opportunity for him to work with Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney at that table as a center block um, mm -hmm really holding um, hope for, for more bipartisan uh, work across the aisle on a whole host of these issues. Again, I would be thrilled to see immigration succeed, but I do think the progressive pressure on that issue might be the worst of all the things that we've um, discussed. And finally, I was very heartened to see what happened with, um, with the problem solvers uh, effort and, and the senators uh, who joined them on uh, that final batch of relief, because it was really the first time where the leadership had sort of so broken down and consumed by electoral panic that an aftermath, that this was able to be a decentralized process where members actually came together and really put the thing together themselves. 
Uh, and that is really an important predicate going forward. Um, uh, again, so much hinging on the outcome tomorrow. And I, I just want to finish with, um, you know, my great hope for 2021 is that Mitch McConnell really sort of holds like the stabilization of the free world in his hands. And I'm sorry to sound so kind of um, cynical about that, but really he does. He's in his last term, he's 79. He's been in the Senate for 37 years. He's worked with Joe Biden for decades of that. He will be rid of Trump, if not the effects of Trump on the 2024 wannabes in his caucus. But he has the opportunity with two, more than 200 judges behind him to actually um, work across the aisle and not block things like prescription drug bills from the floor. So um, let us all hope that he finds the light. Uh, and um, as for the rest of them, I know that um, they will do us well. Thank you so much. Thank you to all four speakers. Um, I'm now gonna turn it over to Ryan Clancy for Q&A. So Ryan. Thanks so much, Bob. Um, thank you all for joining. And before we get to our uh, queue of questions, there was one question I just wanted to lead with uh, for Stephen Bill, and it's really simple, is as everybody's kind of alluded to in the first half of this call, what happened with that COVID-19 in which our House and Senate allies really dragged leadership to the table when they almost didn't want to get there? That was a signal moment, and I know, Steve, you've written about that. I think the question for everybody on this call is, how do we replicate that? But but how do we replicate that in a way that, that we know that we don't want to be the group that is the permanent insurrection against leadership because that will fail eventually. But but how do you see over the course of the, you know, the first half year, full year of Congress that our group can strike that balance where when leadership is being constructive, they can they can be those allies they need. But when they need a push, they can push and sometimes aggressively. Steve, I'd love to hear an opening thought from you on this. You know, Ryan, I, I think I maybe would disagree with you a little bit on, on something you just said. I, I think it's important really early on for the no caucus, for the no labels problem solvers caucus to say to the leadership when they attack, when they, when they approach the very first issue that they're going to do, whatever that turns out to be, you're not going to do this. We're doing it and to continually challenge not the fact that they get to decide, to, to, to challenge the fact that we need to return to regular order. You need to let the committees work their will and, and bring things to the, to the chambers, to the committees and then the chambers that we can amend. I don't think, Ryan, you can do this um, without fixing the plumbing you need to fix the fundamental plumbing and the fundamental plumbing of legislating has to go back to regular order of letting committees do their work and getting the leaders out of it until the very end. And, uh, and if, 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 the, if our caucus doesn't really insist upon this right from the get-go, I think we're just gonna fall back into old habits again in which then the only alternative is as you say, to be the permanent insurrectionists. Um, so I, I, you know, I, it's boring. I know it's boring to talk about fixing the plumbing, but the plumbing is so broke that I don't know how you can really do anything on an ongoing basis without it. Bill, I don't, I don't know if your plumbing license is up to date, but any thoughts you'd like to <laughs> add there? Well, I don't know. Uh, plumbers are pretty exciting. 
when the water is spreading in your basement, I've discovered. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know where I, I, I don't know exactly where I stand in the great Pearlstein Clancy tactical smackdown, uh, but uh, uh, there is an old saying, which I think may apply to today's leaders, namely that they won't see the light until they feel the heat. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously you don't, you, you don't go out spoiling for a fight, uh, but you begin with some clear objectives. Let me give you just one example in answer to your question. Uh, the, uh, the bipartisan bill, the, this, the COVID relief bill that's been alluded to several times where the problem solvers along working hand in hand with our sympathizers in the Senate made that happen a great success was an incomplete success because it excluded aid for states and localities, which every single governor will tell you is absolutely essential if the schools are to reopen and the vaccines are be, to be distributed and tests are to be conducted at the level needed to keep the pandemic uh, subdued or at least within bounds while the vaccine is taking hold. Because uh, one, one of the problems we have right now is that the medical personnel in the state and states and localities are being torn in two directions simultaneously. On the one hand, they're being called upon to deal with a flood of new cases. The same people are being called upon to man the vaccination centers or at least to oversee them. Uh, you know, even for even for our heroic nurses, they're only 24 hours in a day, and many of them are working 24/7 for days at a time. So, what this means to me is that both by inclination and because he has no choice, President Biden will have to come back to the Congress for aid to states and localities. Mitch McConnell. Well, however more cooperative he may become compared to, let us say, 2009, has made it clear that state and local aid is not going to move a step forward without a viable solution to the liability problem that so many corporations are now facing, or at least fearing that they face. Well, as it happens, we have been in the thick of both sides of that compromise. It was our people in the House and in the Senate who came up with a formula for state and local aid that is broadly acceptable. And it was the new center that put on the table the only serious bipartisan solution to the liability issue that anybody has advanced so far. So there's every reason, there's every reason to believe that that issue will be joined early and that our folks are going to be in a better position, both substantively and politically, to make progress on it than any other group that I can name in the Congress. So I think, you know, I think we should roll up our sleeves early and be ready to act. Right. Thanks, Bill. Um, well, let's let's get right into the question and start with Gene Bernstein. Gene, you have a question. Yeah, my question was uh, given the points that have been made about how slender 
the majorities are going to be in both houses and the huge success that we've had with the COVID bill, uh, will we try to enlarge from 50 members in the problem solvers? And you know, to me, that would be riding the wave and trying to get as big and strong as we can to have more influence going forward. Um, I, is Tom, if Tom Davis is still with us, Tom, I mean, I, I can sort of say there is an appetite among the caucus members, uh, Josh and Tom, uh, Gottheimer and Reed, to grow the caucus, and they see an opportunity to do it. Um, but Tom, maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you think incoming members view the Problem Solvers Caucus and, wh and why you think maybe they'd be interested in joining. Well, look, I, I think it's there are two types of members that we'll get. First of all, the members that are from these swing districts, some of them might have beaten a problem solver, but they want to become a problem solver because they come from a marginal district. They're going to be going through a redistricting cycle this time and not sure what their district is going to look like and they want to have a broad appeal. Uh, so it's politically to their advantage to go in there and be able to show they can cross party lines. That is to their advantage. That, that's the rare member. Remember, only at max 20% of these districts are really in that competitive group. And that's our sweet spot. But we also have a number of members who come to Congress all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed wanting to get something done and find right away that they're encumbered in this big partisan food fight that they have nothing to do all day but sit around and wait for the deal and then get beat up until they vote for the deal and they become frustrated after a while. Their voices aren't heard, nothing is getting done. And we've attracted a number of members to the caucus who are very liberal or very conservative but recognize that deal making and compromise are just part of the American system if we want anything to do. That takes a little longer to set in for some of those members to come aboard. But third is we have members who are very enthusiastic about this caucus, who have seen that when they do get in trouble, sometimes there is a cavalry there to help them. Um, and that will, I can, can spread the gospel for some of these new members and try to bring them in one at a time, balancing the Republican and Democrat. So I'm optimistic, although we lost a handful of members because they were from swing districts in this uh, cycle, that we're going to probably grow the, grow the caucus. Fantastic. I just chime in there with a, uh, a little thought. I'd be careful about growing it too big. Reaching consent, the whole thing about this caucus is they stick together. And reaching consensus uh, becomes uh, increasingly yeah. difficult the wider, the wider the group is. You know, uh, 50, members of, uh, 50 members of the House is good. Uh, uh, more than that is going to, I think, difficult to, to reach agreement and stick together. The, the bigger problem, it seems to me, is where you ought to work on is in, is, is in the Senate. And again, that doesn't have to be huge, but I, I, you probably need to get uh, uh, at least 12 uh, very active members who are willing to stick together. 12 brings you over 60 uh, easily, and uh, you won't be able to have the same sort of formalized organization in the Senate that you do in the House, but that's why you need a little extra margin. But I, I, would, I, would, fo I would focus on quality rather than quantity on, uh, on this one. Uh, well, Steve, well, let me just add to that. One of the major things is, is not everybody's going to agree to everything, but it's the only opportunity members have to sit around the table and talk to somebody from the other side without having the cameras in view where they're yelling at each other across Fox or MSNBC. Um, and so, uh, as I said, I, I think we have room for more members. And as they get, if they become more frustrated with a deadlock, a process, we can become really a very strong third force. 
So I wouldn't put a limit on the membership. I think the limit is reached by the is is set by the number of these single party districts and members whose first and foremost concern is their primary and their inability to compromise. And, and that's the, the vast bulk of members. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Steve. Um, Rick Shifter, question from you. Rick. Yeah, so if the Democrats um, end up winning both seats in uh, Georgia, uh, what are the odds that there will be an effort made to uh, change the filibuster rules and uh, what would happen in that event? AB, you want to take a crack at that one? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, uh, again, this is going to disappoint all the passionate progressives out there, but there is not going to be any kind of a vote uh, to pursue any of the uh, governmental and electoral reforms that uh, Republicans use uh, so effectively in their ads about the Electoral College and court packing and legislative filibuster. Uh, you're just not going to get the support of uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly, who is up in 2022. Um, I just can't, I don't see it. Um, to, to break the legislative filibuster. And those are people that we know of. Um, there are other people that would be in the caucus that uh, we're not mentioning, um, who are not sort of moderate conservative Democrats uh, who would also likely disagree. So uh, Joe Biden is against it, um, though he just tried to sort of uh, be quiet about that during the campaign, um, but that's not gonna happen. So that's why Bill and I are kind of warning that um, pushing through bold voting rights or climate um, legislation or anything um, is not possible in this scenario, even if they win uh, both of those seats. It's just, you're gonna have to do 60 votes on almost everything. Gotcha. Thank you, A.B. Um, Carla O'Dell. Carla, you have a question. Thank you, Ryan. Um, given that uh, the vaccine immunization uh, is like issues one, two, and three out of the top five when they first come in, is the state, I think Bill addressed this, he said the, the issue that the um, our bipartisan groups, the problem solvers and our Senate partners can put forward that'll get the most traction and keep us front and center might be the state aid to state and localities and the uh, liabilities, which is the other side of the coin. Is that what the other uh, panelists think? What can we do to keep uh, this moderate center visible to the world as a success? Tom, maybe you want to start with that one? Yeah, I mean, our team, if you listen to the discussions within the caucus, uh, our members felt, you know, we'll, we'd like it with everything, but we'll take whatever the common denominator. Let's get something out there. Let's get some money out there. Uh, but I think these other issues are going to be revisited very, very quickly as we continue to have problems getting that vaccine out there in a timely manner. And as state governments, even though they're given the vaccine, are having trouble deploying it, opening schools, et cetera. Uh, so we'll get another shot at it. And uh, I think this time we're liable to get something. I think the president will put his prestige on the line. You know, he, he doesn't get a real big honeymoon, but I get to, he gets some benefit of the doubt, I think, for weighing in on this uh, early on. Um, and I think they're gonna, I think this is the opportunity for him. He'll, he'll have about 60 days uh, where I think he gets the benefit of the doubt on some of this stuff. And with the help of our members, I think that's likely to happen. Great. Um, Roger Servison. Roger, you have a question. Yes, thank you. My question is, what do you think the odds are that we'll see major tax reform passed in the next two years? I'll take that. I think zero. Uh, if the Democrats were to win both Senate races, there will be a reconciliation bill. And at that point, if they can hold their 50 votes in the Senate, 
I think you'll see that a level to increase uh, some taxes, as Joe Biden has talked about. Uh, if they don't win it, uh, the chances are zero. The only way you're going to get a re any kind of tax bill, I think, is through the reconciliation process, and that's a party-line vote, and that would take all 50 senators and the vice president to move that through. And so you look at Georgia tonight, and uh, if the Democrats take both, you may not get reform, but I think you'll get uh, some, some adjustments in the rates, as Biden has talked about. Any any divergent views, A.B., Bill, Steve, are you good with Tom? No, I, I'm with Tom. I mean, it, reconciliation is just a, it's going to be controversial. It's going to be partisan. You could, you again, there could be some moderate Democrats you don't pick up. And I don't, I don't think it would be, um, it, it might involve some reform, minor, though. Uh, again, it would just be to claw back some of that money to, I, likely to be spent on health care. Okay. Uh, Doug Rutherford. Doug. I, my question was uh, in recognizing that the, the Problem Solvers Caucus makes their own rules. Uh, I guess the question is whether House members who joined or said that they had intended to join as Amici in the in the Texas AG's lawsuit and or who vote to object to electors tomorrow are still able to work effectively within the Problem Solvers Caucus. So, Doug, your, your question was about the, the folks who are voting tomorrow. Whether that's a, well, there, there were member at least one member of the caucus that that uh, it wasn't in the printed signatures, but he said after the fact that he had intended to become an. Yeah. A, a yeah. Well, you know, here's uh, this is a good question for Tom, um, and I, I just want to flip it a little, uh, which is, I mean, Tom, there are most the, the vast majority uh, uh, of the Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus will be voting to certify the electors tomorrow, including Tom Reed, who's out with a statement today. But can you talk about um, the likelihood that, uh, that that may be the cause of them getting primary challenges uh, over the course of this cycle? Yeah, look, the, the country, as I noted before, you've got all these counties that are voting 90% and 80%. People don't tune into the news anymore to get information. They tune in to get affirmation. And they're all dealing with different sets of facts. Uh, and as you talk to some of these people that have come to Washington, I talk to my friends, uh, they, they believe what they believe, and that's, you, you have to deal with it. And members have to deal when they go back to their districts with what their people are thinking, not with what they tell their members to think or as they see the facts. And I've talked to several members uh, who have talked to me about this. Uh, my counsel is this is a legacy vote. This is an important vote for your legacy. But some of them said, look, I'm going to have a primary if I don't do this. This isn't real bullets. We know how this turns out. And first of all, I've got to get reelected. We don't have a litmus test uh, in, in the Problem Solvers Caucus. I would just say that the vast, vast majority of members who would be attracted to something like the Problem Solvers Caucus uh, are willing to take a tough vote. Uh, tomorrow is not a tough vote for Democrats. It's a tough vote for Republicans because many of them are buying primaries. They earn the wrath of, of Trump and he's, gonna, he's already has, has a couple hundred million dollars in a pack that he has raised. Um, so they're, they're the ones that take, it's a tough political vote. It may not be a tough principle vote for many of them. And so the kind of members that are attracted to our caucus are not likely to vote for this, but we don't make it, we don't have a litmus test for people to get in the caucus and they can vote that way and come in and work across party lines on some other issues. It's just, that's just, uh, I'd say generally not the temperament of our people. Yeah. And by the way, that, that is a really important distinction Tom made about a litmus test. Um, even if we did have one, we wouldn't enforce it because no labels is separate from the problem solvers caucus. So it, though we're so tightly aligned, um, we are not the boss of them. 
uh, that, you know, Josh Gottheimer, Tom Reed, they make their own rules. They decide who comes, who goes, um, and that's, that's as it should be. Um, May I just add a word here? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. I, you know, I, ab I absolutely you know, agree with Tom's political assessment uh, that this is, this is a tough vote for many Republicans. Uh, it is also the case, as I think, as I think you pointed out, uh, that many of many of the votes that the problem solvers have to take are tough votes, and uh, and this is a uh, and I agree that we shouldn't have a litmus test, uh, but I think it's I think it's fair uh, to believe that the vote tomorrow will end up on a lot of people's political tombstones. And they might want to ask themselves what <laughs> they'd like to have engraved on those, on, on those tombstones. Uh, because this, this is an issue that touches not a particular policy dispute, uh, but goes to the heart of our democracy. Uh, and uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, you know, I agree with the spirit of Doug's question. What I take to be the spirit of Doug's question. I mean, this is this is a very grave moment, and it's not a throwaway vote, and shouldn't be shouldn't be seen through a purely political calculus. Even though many people will see it that way. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Bill. Um, Paul Haga. Paul, you have a question. <clears throat> yeah. Hi. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Um, I directed this originally in the in the. Um, chat room to AB, but others uh, can comment as well. AB, I was interested that you mentioned uh, immigration as being one of the things like um, the filibuster or anything that, that is just, is, or even um, uh, that's just, it's simply too toxic and too partisan to come it's through now. So I, was, so I was wondering what about the uh, bipartisan legislation that was floating around a few years ago would that have a chance now, or is that going to be even too too partisan to uh, to be considered early in a uh, Biden administration? In a perfect world, um, a popular, uh, broad compromise uh, that earned a lot of bipartisan support would be amenable to Joe Biden um, and would make sense. Anything as a start would make sense. Instead of looking at, we have to answer every immigration question on everybody's wish list. Um, Right now, I, I can't see him doing anything beyond a narrow DACA fix because the pressure from the progressive left is so intense. Um, they're not going to get what they want on health care, right? So if, if an immigration bill starts to move, they're going to fight very hard. And their demands in the area of immigration are, are just unreasonable. And so I do think that would be difficult, a difficult one for the party to start on early. You know, look at the mistakes that the Republicans made voting 60 times to repeal and replace Obamacare, putting that before infrastructure, forcing Trump to go along. And what did he know about legislative priorities or agendas or negotiating? And all of a sudden they find themselves mired in, um, you know, the whole first year and their donors end up saying, if you don't pass tax reform, we're not going to fund the midterm elections. They finally have to scramble to get that done because they wasted so much time on health care to which there was no consensus. So when I look at the Democratic Party and the pent up uh, progressive pressure, which yes, there are narrow margins 
and they will get sort of isolated. They won't get their Medicare for all, their free college. But at the same time, if they want to use their, their insurgent force for bad, they, they can give the speaker a terrible life because the Freedom Caucus did. Because if she can only lose five people on every vote, you know, the newly seven, the newly amended squad, which is now seven people or whatever it is, you know, could really bring a lot of heat. So those are going to be gives and takes, right? Where Biden and Pelosi say to the left, look, we'll give you this later, but right now you've got to be with us now on this. From nominees, this process has already started behind the scenes, you know, in November, from nominees and cabinet positions all the way into what are the legislative priorities given the margins we have. And so that's my concern is that um, something that's sensible, um, that, that should get a lot of bipartisan support, might um, they might make it their last stand as they head towards the, the midterm elections. And they view, unfortunately, progressives view Biden as a temporary leader. And so while I don't think he stays up at night worrying about the future of the Democratic Party, I think he knows exactly where he needs to apply um, his strength and energy and political capital, which is what we've said, which is these, you know, these, in these crises. Um, but I think that this this push for immigration is is likely to be a difficult one um, with, with the far left. Uh, Ryan, could I just add a word on this? Go ahead, uh, just you know, because uh, I'd like to pick up on something that AB said just in passing. Uh, we have been trying to fix DACA for the better part of a decade, <laughs> right? So. You know, True. And there is there is substantial agreement across party lines and across chambers uh, that there is an opportunity not only to do it, but to do it cleanly without getting without getting mired in long negotiations. And uh, I think that this is an example of a choice that the new president is going to be facing in a number of different areas. Do you go narrow? and look for areas where there is pretty close to a pre-established bipartisan uh, compromise available, or do you go broad and get stuck early on? Uh, you know, so another example, you know, the same structure as DACA versus comprehensive immigration reform, there is a consensus across party lines on universal broadband access as the electricity of the 21st century. If Biden decided to go that road, I think he could get an early win that would be very significant for rural America as well as urban America. Yeah. I could go down, I could go down the list of issues and with this contrast between the broad, politically difficult approach and the narrower the narrow approach that could get a series of wins pretty early on. And I guess you can tell from the way I framed it, what my advice would be if, it, if he were to seek it. Thanks, Bill. Um, we have time just for one last question uh, from Martha Conti. Martha. Um, the, this feeling that I have that we talk about ourselves as moderates and centrists, and we talk about swing states and a lot of focus is there, but I really feel like the place where we need to uh, position ourselves is is more as the uh, for everyone of uh, partisans of all stripes who want to get things done because that's where the value is, and they have less to lose being painted with that centrist or moderate brush. Yep. 
Um, Martha, that, that is such a great point um, and actually a great point to close on. Um, because if you look at No Label's website, if you look at any of our materials that we put out, we never put the word moderate or centrist in there for the exact reason Martha describes. This is, this is a movement, yes, for moderates and centrists, but also for liberals and conservatives who just recognize pragmatic problem solving is what the country needs and how we have historically gotten things done. So uh, that's a great point and one we'll stay focused on. Um, well, that is our time. That's, it's, it's an hour and uh, we wanna stick to our, our discipline of keeping these calls an hour. Just wanna thank you all for joining. And as a closing thought, um, just wanna remind you that we're gonna be doing this all year. So this is our first briefing. Uh, we hope to see a lot more of you. We hope you will invite friends and colleagues. And above all, we really hope that uh, as we get into this cycle, you're gonna consider no labels your political home, uh, the place through which to the extent you're active, engaged, donating to candidates, um, that you're doing it through us because it sends such a powerful signal uh, to these members that there is this robust and growing coalition of people out, out there who are desperate for this kind of leadership, who will vote for it, who will donate uh, for the leaders who embody it. Um, and so we hope you'll stay tuned and stay engaged. And, um, and I think Bob, very exciting. And Bob Tuttle, if we could just have a formal close from you as our, our chair for this event, we'd love to hear it. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, thank you to all of us. Uh, I found this fascinating. I've got two pages of notes. Um, I think what we should do is get this same panel together in a year or two and see how their predictions worked out. But a, a final thought, one more happy birthday to Tom Davis. Thank you all for joining and happy new year. You just heard a broad consensus that this is no labels moment. Because the new House and Senate will be governed by such small margins, bipartisan groups like the Problem Solvers Caucus will be essential. As Dr. Galston points out, few presidents have come into office with the kinds of challenges facing Joe Biden, and he'll need all the help he can get from congressional Democrats and Republicans committed to working with him to solve problems. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.